All right, what's up, Salt City? I uh, wish I could be with you guys in person, but the fun part is I get to show you my family that I'm always bragging on. Come here, big guy. This is my Corona Buster right here. When I'm feeling sad, this little dude just loves life. He's taking my notes, but just say hi, Graham. Say hi. Say hi. All right, that's all. Thanks. <laughs> I seriously... Um, have learned a ton from Graham in this. The dude, he doesn't know there's a pandemic going on. And the dude just is living life hard and loving life. And I feel like there's a joy there that we actually have access to as Christians. I've been thinking a lot about that. And so one of the things I'm praying for you guys, been praying for myself as we dig into the word today is just for joy that is supernatural and doesn't really make sense with the current circumstances. And uh, we have just happened to get stuck in this place in the book of Genesis where there is a worldwide crisis and the story is about how God comes through in a worldwide crisis, which kind of a funny coincidence, right? No, like God did that. He did that for our church of, he gave us this story of Joseph how Joseph is going through this famine and all of this stuff in his life is going completely wrong. And it feels like everything's crumbling. And then in the end, God comes through and it turns out for his good. And so, um, yeah, that's what I want to, what I want to talk about today, but just want to step back for a sec and remind you, okay, so we're going through the book of Genesis. It's uh, been a minute since we've been actually through this book. The main thing you've got to remember when we're studying Genesis together is that this book is full of a bunch of random stories, but all of those stories come together in one main story about what God is doing in the world. In particular, that God has established a group of people that he promises to bless. And, and the story of Genesis is a collection of stories moving forward towards the blessing of God, even when it seems like it's not coming. So if you were to picture the book of Genesis as like a pond, okay, Picture skipping a rock across that pond. So every story in the book of Genesis is like when the rock hits the water and these ripple effects go out across the entire narrative. Um, and every story that we see is like a little divine touch point in the pond. And then we get the rock skips up in the air, right? And, and there's a little bit of time period that passes. And then there's another touch point. And then there's another touch point. And there's another touch point. And, and the thing that we've got to remember is sometimes we get lost in all the characters, stuff like that. But like a rock skipping across a pond, the, the story of Genesis is going in one direction. It's linear. It's moving in the direction of God coming through on his promises. And the little divine touch point that we're in today is the story of how God provides, even when it looks like everything's falling apart. And not only is that how the book of Genesis works, but I actually want us to see that these promises that God made to his people thousands of years ago, that we are actually in the continuation of those promises. So that rock has kept skipping all the way throughout history. And the current rock skip, the current divine touch point that we're in right now is called the coronavirus. And what it feels like is that everything is sort of regressing, but it's actually progressing forward towards the promises of God being fulfilled. All right, so let's dig into this. So we've been in the story of Joseph. We'll jump in in chapter 42, Genesis chapter 42. But first, I wanted to give you a brief overview of sort of the story of Joseph so far. So this is what we've learned is that Joseph was 
the young brother who was the favorite of his dad. And not only was he the favorite, but Joseph was a dreamer. And he had these dreams that his entire family one day was going to bow before him. And Joseph, in his infinite childlike wisdom, decides to tell his older brothers, oh, hey, by the way, guys, I had this dream that one day you're going to bow to me. Brothers didn't love it. In the overreaction of the century, they decide to kill him for it. So they throw him down into this pit. They're going to leave him for dead. But in the process, they see this Egyptian caravan going past, and they decide, oh, let's make some money off of him. And Judah, remember that name Judah, is the brother who suggests selling Joseph into slavery. And so they sell Joseph into slavery in Egypt. He's put in this household where he serves faithfully, but he's falsely accused of sexual assault, and he's thrown in prison. So he's unjustly thrown in prison. And then once he's in prison, he has this interaction with this cupbearer who has this dream, and Joseph predicts that he'll be let out of prison. He says, hey, once you're out of prison, remember me, advocate for me. The cupbearer gets out of prison. He comes into the good graces of Pharaoh in Egypt, but the cupbearer forgets all about Joseph for a number of years. But then later, Pharaoh has this dream. And he's looking for someone to interpret the dream and the cupbearer remembers Joseph. And so Joseph is pulled out of prison into the throne room of the most powerful man in the world. And he interprets this dream properly, that there's this famine coming across the whole land that's a danger for the entire world. And Joseph interprets the dream for Pharaoh. And as a result of his wisdom, he's put in this place, becoming essentially the second most powerful man in the world. So that's what's happened in the story so far. And we haven't even hit the climax yet. This story is, it's insane. If you took just the story of Joseph in and of itself, it'd be one of the greatest works of literature of all time. And so today we're about to get to the climax of the story, which is where Joseph is essentially ruling over Egypt and his brothers come as a result of this famine. They come to Egypt to buy food and they end up meeting Joseph and Joseph recognizes them but they don't recognize him. And so in seeing this Egyptian ruler, they bow before him and that dream that Joseph had had earlier in life is fulfilled. And here's the the point of that in the text is God is trying to show us that this entire time in all the chaos of Joseph's life, God has been working behind the scenes to bring them to this point. Now, if you go through and you read the story of Joseph, obviously you can't read the entire thing right now, but if you go through, you read the story, what you're going to find is after Joseph meets his brother. So again, the the brothers don't know who he is, but he knows who they are. If you read this story, you're going to see all of these seemingly absolutely random and ridiculous actions of Joseph. So he throws them in prison for a while and then he sends them home and then he tells them to come back and he's hiding stuff in their bags. Right. Um, And it, it looks random at best, or maybe sort of vindictive on the part of Joseph that he's, he's sort of pulling this power play off on his brothers. But that's not actually true because you see over and over again, Joseph's soft heart towards his brothers. So there's actually something else going on behind the scenes. And here's the big interpretive point you got to get to get the story is that Joseph is testing his brothers. He's testing their character to see if these formerly wicked men have repented and are actually different as a result of what God has been doing in their lives. And not only that, but it's not just Joseph that's testing them, but it's actually God behind the scenes testing these brothers. So 
I want to look at this through the lens of there's essentially three tests from God to these brothers. So test number one is in chapter 42. So if you kind of glance through 42, I can't read all of it to you, but let me give you the the summary of chapter 42 is that Joseph throws his brothers in prison for a couple days and then he sends them home. And as he's sending them out, he puts both food and hides some money in their sack. Now, some of you are not happy with me for saying the word sack just now. Uh, the true Minnesotan way to go about this would be to say he put it in their bag. Um, but the ESV translates it sack. All right. So I'm just, I'm being biblical here. So, so he puts the stuff in their sack and or bag and uh, he hides money in there. And essentially the point of this test is to test the brothers to get them aware that God is doing something in their lives. Test number two is in chapter 43, where the brothers come back to Egypt and Joseph essentially has, throws this feast for them. They have their younger brother, Benjamin, with them. And Joseph shows this favoritism towards Benjamin, gives Benjamin like five times the amount of food that the other brothers give. And in the process, what Joseph here is doing is he's reenacting the favoritism that he once received from their father. And he's testing his brothers to see when his brothers encounter this favoritism that's not going their way, how will they respond? Will they again get angry towards their brother or will they stand up for him and protect him? And the brothers actually pass that test. They don't get angry towards Benjamin, but they continue to stand up for him and protect him. And then test number three is in chapter 44. And so Joseph again sends all the brothers back home. But this time he hides this silver cup in the bag of Benjamin. You don't really know why, but he sends them off and then he pursues them. And so let me read you just a section of this text from Genesis chapter 42, starting in verse 1. Then he commanded the stewards of his house, fill the men's sack with food as much as they can carry and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of his sack against the youngest, sack of the youngest, with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. So Joseph hides this cup in Benjamin's bag without Benjamin knowing about it. And then uh, they send them off and the brothers are traveling back home. And then Joseph chases them down in the wilderness and they overtake them and essentially accuse them of stealing from Joseph. So let me pick it up in verse seven, the brother's response to this accusation, verse seven, they said to him, why does the Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money that we found in the mouths of our sacks was brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then can we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Which of your servants is found with it shall die. And we also will be my Lord's servants. Okay, so do you see the tension that's happening right here? Essentially what they're saying is, we didn't steal from you. If you find any of your stuff with us, the person who stole it, that person will die. And remember, it's in Benjamin, the youngest bag. Verse 10, he said, let it be as you say, he who is found with it shall be my servant and the rest of you shall be innocent. Then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground and each man opened his sack and he searched beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes and every man loaded his donkey and they returned to the city. So this is really key. You need to see what's happening here. is essentially are being presented with the same issue that they were initially presented with with Joseph is they have an opportunity 
for their own benefit to abandon their brother and to go on their way and live their lives and abandon their brother to slavery and potentially death. And so the question is, they're put back in this test of God, back in the same scenario that they once were put in with Joseph. And the question is, are they the same or have these brothers changed? So jump forward to verse 44, or excuse me, chapter 44, verse 33. Now, therefore, this is Judah speaking. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my brothers. Do you see what Judah is saying here? Judah, the one that initially sold Joseph into slavery, now has the chance to sell his younger brother into slavery again. But instead of selling him into slavery, what does Judah say? He says, my life for his. I'll go into slavery if you'll set him free. And Joseph is so overwhelmed by this response from Judah, by seeing that his brothers are different, that he actually finally reveals himself to his brothers. And he says, hey, look, I'm Joseph. I'm your brother. Can you imagine what that moment was like for the brothers? They must've been terrified, but Joseph essentially calms them down and says, Hey, I want to save you. And Joseph ends up doing that. And he brings the entire family into the salvation that's in Egypt and rescues them from the famine. Okay. So that's the story. Those are those tests that the brothers went through. And so what we see in this story is that Joseph himself goes through a testing from God through this difficult life that he lives, and his brothers are also tested by God. So I want to zoom back in on those tests, and I want to start with the test of the brothers, otherwise known as the test for sinners. So how does God test sinners? Well, there's a couple interesting clues that we get from the text. So if you jump back to chapter 42, uh, starting in verse 21, so the brothers have just gotten out of prison. They've been in prison for a couple days. And in chapter 2, verse 21, this is what they say to each other. Then they said to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother and that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. So right now they're talking about Joseph, which is a little bit odd, right? Because even though they're interacting with Joseph, they don't know that it's him yet. So why are they thinking about Joseph? The answer is that they've had three days to sit in prison. They've had time to think, and the guilt of their past sins are, is starting to arise in their soul. They're starting to hear the voice of their brother calling out to them from the pit, and their conscience is weighing on them. And so they're feeling the guilt of what they've done, and then they're interpreting that guilt. At the end of that text there, it says, that is why this distress has come upon us. In other words, they remember that they're guilty because of their past sins and their interpretation of these events that are happening in their life is that God is bringing retribution back on them, that he's paying them back for their sins. Question for you, when you've got time to think, when you're locked up in your house, you don't got anywhere to go, what does your conscience bring up for you? What's the past life? What's the past sins? What's the guilt that comes up in your soul as you're laying in bed thinking about at night? And, and when you're reminded of the guilt of your sins, your temptation might be to believe that when things are going wrong, either macro in the world or micro in your life, that it's actually God getting back at you. 
that he's paying you back for your sins, that he's coming back in retribution. But here's what I want you to see is there's one thing that the brothers got right, that God was working in their lives. That's what they got right. But the thing they got wrong is why he was working in their lives. They thought he was doing it to punish them, but he was actually doing it to save them. God was pursuing them into their guilt, into their weakness and their pain because he wanted to bring healing to the depths of their soul. And so what happens is, is the brothers think that they've been found out by God. They've been caught by him and Judah owns up to it and just says, yes, I've sinned. And he thinks that he'll be punished and thrown into slavery for those sins. But actually that's the very thing that God uses to bring healing and restoration to their entire family. This is what I'm saying. If you are God's kid, He will pursue you into the moments of your deepest unconfessed sin in your life. He'll remind you of those sins that you're trying to forget, but it's not to judge you, it's to heal you. It's by pursuing you into those things and reminding you of those things that he wants to bring restoration to your life. So let him in. Let him do the same work that he did on the brother's soul because he's good and he's trustworthy. And if if you're his kid, He'll bring forgiveness. He'll bring redemption, not anger and wrath. All right, so that was the test of God towards the sinner. What about the test of God towards the one sinned against, towards Joseph, towards the victim of these crimes from his brother? So so if there's a definition of a victim, Joseph is it, right? He's betrayed by his family and sold into slavery, which in a lot of senses might even be worse than if he would have been killed by his brothers. He's falsely accused and betrayed by Potiphar's wife. He's thrown into prison, even though he didn't deserve it. Then in prison, he helps out this cupbearer and the cupbearer forgets about him. So this, the story of Joseph's entire life is a story of unjust things happening to him. Now, here's what might be true for you, is that you maybe have been the victim. You've maybe been the victim of someone sinning against you, or maybe you've been the victim of a crime. You know what it's like to experience the injustice that Joseph experiences. But I want you to pay attention to how Joseph responds to that injustice in his life. Flip over. Flip over to chapter 45, verse 44. See, here's what Joseph could have done is he could have chosen to be bitter at the people who had sinned against him, or he could have chosen to be bitter and angry at God. And isn't that the thing that seems most logical when things go wrong in your life is to blame God, to ask him questions. Why are you doing this to me? I don't deserve this, right? But listen to Joseph's response, chapter 45, verse four. So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. So this is Joseph's revelation of who he is to his brothers. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me here before you to preserve life. Okay. Don't be distressed or angry with yourselves. They sold him into slavery. And Joseph's response is, hey, Don't be angry with yourself. How is he saying this? Verse six, for the famine has been in the land these two years and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors 
So it was not you who sent me here, but God. Think about Joseph's life. Think about all of the suffering. Think about the years of abandonment, loneliness, and pain. And this is Joseph's conclusion over all of those things, is it was not you who sent me here. It was God. Behind the famine, behind the the injustice, God was working behind the scenes. See, Joseph was choosing to see the goodness of God behind the suffering in his life. The utter genius working its way out out in front of evil, manipulating evil into good. That's what Joseph saw. And that faith that Joseph had in his life healed his bitterness. It healed his bitterness towards his brothers, and it healed the bitterness that he could have had towards God when he could have given up hope on God through all of those years of suffering. See, here's what we're talking about here, the interplay between human free will and evil committed against each other and God's goodness and his control. Now, this is something that people have been debating throughout the history of the world. It's a, uh, a theological question that Christians have always gone back and forth on. I'm not going to solve it today, but what I want us to do is to sit in the tension of how God brings those two things together because it's actually beautiful. The point isn't to figure it out. The point is to be amazed at the mysterious genius of God working in the world, right? So one of the best parts about jazz music is the improvised solos, right? And, and sometimes uh, soloists who are improvising, they'll use a, a simple tune that they've heard before that isn't beautiful and they'll turn it into something beautiful, right? So they'll take something like, half day that's not complex or interesting or not beautiful and they'll take those basic tunes and they'll turn it into this intricate beautiful solo right so if we're playing jazz music with god god gives us the opportunity to have some decisions in our lives that really matter so he essentially says hey i want you to give my give me my starting point give me the notes to play with and we collectively as the human race walk up to a piano and we essentially slam our fist on it and make the, the most clashing, disgusting sound that you've heard. And God goes, okay, I can work with that. And he turns it into something complex, beautiful, and amazing. We at best as humans in the world play hot cross, hot cross buns. God turns it into Beethoven. He's out in front of our weakness and our inadequacies and our sins, and he's turning them into something beautiful and amazing that we never could have saw coming. And so here's what that means, is like Joseph, we can have defiant hope, even when it feels like everything else around us is going wrong. We can just stubbornly refuse to give up to give up when things are going wrong in the world, when things are going wrong with us personally. So when the coronavirus hits, when a recession happens, when it's an election year, when you're stuck in your house, you can have this stubborn, joyful hope. Not because we're sort of immune to the circumstances of life. It hits us the same as it does anybody else, but because we're able to see through the circumstances into something greater that's happening behind the scenes. We're able to see that this mess that's currently going on in front of us and that was initially produced by evil. I, I, I want to be clear on that. God, God chose to allow us to have our free will. And in that free will, we have sinned against him and we've ruined his good world. But he's not surprised 
by any of those things that have happening. And so coronavirus comes from sin, yet God is out in front of it, working it for our good. So coronavirus is like a plow. So it's like a plow that is coming through our world and it's churning everything up. And if you look at the front of the plow, it looks like it's destructive, like it's just destroying the soil in front of it. But here's what we know as Christians is behind the plow comes God planting seeds of new life. And so the point isn't that we sort of can get out of the destruction and chaos of the plow coming through. But the point is we're able to see beyond the initial moment and to see something greater that's happening behind the scenes. And that's what God is doing in our world right now is we're praying and we're believing as Christians, even when it seems illogical, even though it's not, we're praying that God will bring life from some of this destruction that we're seeing going on in the world. And we've actually got a long history of examples of Christians who have done this in moments of pain and suffering. Um, There's so many quotes and examples I could give you, but I wanted to give you a couple from a few amazing women that have been through pain and suffering. One, pain and suffering where she could have blamed God for what was happening in her life. And the second, pain and suffering from another human being where she could have blamed that human being. So the first one is Joni Erickson Tata. She's a quadriplegic with chronic pain, was diagnosed with breast cancer. I mean, has just lived this from from a worldly perspective, just a terrible life. But I want you to listen to this quote from her. Nothing more radically altered the way I looked at my suffering than leapfrogging to this end of time vantage point. When God sent a broken neck my way, he blew out the lamps in my life that lit up the here and now and made it so captivating. The dark despair of total and permanent paralysis that followed wasn't much fun, but it sure made heaven come alive. And one day when our bridegroom comes back, probably when I'm right in the middle of lying down on my office sofa for the umpteenth time, God is going to throw open heaven's shutters. There's not a doubt in my mind that I'll be fantastically more excited and ready for it than if I were on my feet. I want to read that one more time. There's not a doubt in my mind that I will be fantastically more excited and ready for it than if I were on my feet. In the meantime, suffering hurries my heart homeward. Suffering hurries my heart homeward. She had defiant hope in the middle of awful circumstances because she could see the hope that was coming her way beyond the circumstances. Second quote I want to read to you is from Rachel Denhollander, who suffered abuse at the hands of Larry Nasser. And when she stood up in her court trial in front of her abuser, this is what she said, utterly remarkable. She's talking to Larry Nasser in this. Should you ever reach the point of truly facing what you have done, the guilt will be crushing. And that is what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet because it extends grace and hope and mercy where none should be found and it will be there for you. I pray you experience the soul crushing weight of guilt so you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God, which you need far more than forgiveness from from me, though I extend that to you as well. How in the world Do you stand before someone like that and offer them the grace of God 
and forgive them yourself. I mean, it's something that, that nothing in us seems like it could be possible. The answer is when you see through the current circumstances and you see the genius of God working behind the scenes for your good. In the middle of evil, God works for good. And so we have hope. We have defiant hope. But to sort of close out our time here, I want to clarify what gives us that defiant hope. Because ultimately, even though we believe that God will come through and that he can bless us in this life and bring us to better circumstances, ultimately, that is not our hope. There's a deeper foundation for our hope. What's the the source of our defiant hope? Well, Well, here's the deal. In the story of Joseph, we tend to identify with Joseph in the story. In other words, we tend to identify as the righteous sufferer, as the the victim who's waiting for the reward of our faithfulness. But is that actually true of us? Are we able to look at our lives and say that we are primarily the righteous sufferer waiting for the reward of our faithfulness? No, that's not us. And so so the first question is, who does Joseph represent in the story? Well, let's think about this for a minute. Is there a person that we know like Joseph who's coming along in the storyline of the Bible who was a righteous sufferer? Is there somebody we know who was falsely accused of something that he didn't do, but in trust in God chose to to be uh, thrown into prison against his will and unjustly suffer? Do we know anybody like that? Yes. Jesus Christ is the truer and greater Joseph, like in the face of obscene injustice, Jesus Christ would be betrayed by the people closest to him. He would be taken captive by those who hated him. He would be stripped of his royal robe. He would be thrown into a pit and left for dead. And and here's the question we got to ask of that as well, is who was it that threw him down in the pit? Who was it that committed that sin against him, who betrayed him even though he didn't deserve it? The answer is it's us. It's you. In your sin, you betrayed the Son of God. You killed the author of life. That's what our sin does. And so this is what you've got to see is you are not primarily Joseph in this story. You're the brothers. You committed a sin against a completely perfect individual who did not deserve that sin. But listen, how were Joseph's brothers saved? The answer is they were saved through their betrayal of Joseph. Is it was God used their sin and their betrayal against their brother to deliver Joseph. And then the brothers were brought before Joseph and they bowed before him. And what did Joseph do? He didn't give them retribution for what they deserved. He didn't give them the punishment that they had coming, but he actually redeemed and reconciled them. What they intended for evil, God used for good. And this is what I want you to see is that what you intend for evil in your sins, what we all intend for evil in our sins, God intends for good. And and, and specifically what you intended for evil in your sins and what that did to Jesus Christ is the means by which God will redeem you. God will save you. 
and remember what they said to Benjamin, what Joseph, or excuse me, what Judah said for Benjamin is that when Benjamin was found out with the cup and he was accused, Judah stood in, in and he said, my life for his. And when you're found out in your sin, Jesus steps in for you. The lion of the tribe of Judah steps in for you. And he says, my life for theirs. He stands between you and your accusers and he steps in in your place. And now you're brought to the person who did that for you, who now has the power over you, the power to punish you, but he doesn't. He offers you mercy. And so the only thing left to do is to bow at his feet to believe him and to trust him. He uses all things for your good, even your sin. When I was thinking about this, I was thinking about, have you guys ever seen a, in a halftime show of some sporting event, an artist painting a work of art? If you haven't seen this, you might be thinking, okay, that sounds like an awful halftime show. And here's the deal, it is. For like 99% of the time, it's terrible. You're just standing there watching a do paint and you have no idea what's going on. But there's the 1%. At the end of the whole thing, there's like a clock ticking down and it just, you can't figure out what he's painting. It just looks chaotic. But the clock ticks down and at the very end of the clock, this is what he does. He takes like some big paintbrush and he sweeps it across the canvas and then he flips the canvas upside down and sets it down. And the whole crowd is like, Oh, and everybody stands up and goes crazy because what two seconds ago looked like chaotic nonsense is like the Mona Lisa or it's a lion and you never saw it. But that one sweep of his hand flips the canvas upside down. And now you can see that the whole time it was a work of art. This is what I'm saying is the majority of your life, you will be watching God, the most perfect artist in the world, do things in the world. And it will look like chaotic nonsense to you. And at best, you'll be bored. And at worst, you'll be confused and frustrated. But either at some points in your life, or at least at the end of all things, at the end of history, God will sweep his brush across the canvas of history. He'll flip that thing upside down. And all of a sudden, your eyes will be open. And you'll see that the whole time he was painting a work of art, he was doing something behind the chaos. He was working it for your good. And it's beautiful. Let me pray. Jesus, um, give us eyes of faith to see what you're doing behind the scenes. And God, there's a lot of moments that I just get caught up in what's going on right now. And I'm, I'm confused and I get nervous about what this is going to mean for the world, what it's going to mean for Salt Company. I, you know, I miss our church. I miss getting to see people and I don't fully understand what you're doing, but I've, I've just seen you come through over and over again. God, I've seen you in your word prove to me that you're good, even when it looks like you're not. And I've seen you in my life when I've consistently doubted you, when I've been afraid when I've been frustrated, you always come through for me most of the time in ways that I didn't expect. And so, God, would you help our church to be people of faith? That doesn't mean that we're always going to be happy or that we're always going to understand, but that even in the middle of our confusion and misunderstanding, that we would trust you, that we would believe that you're good and that you're up to something. And God, we, we pray that you would do what you do, that, that through the chaos happening right now in our world, that you would plant seeds that would, that would sprout 
new life, new kingdom life in our world, that you would save people through this, that you would draw people to yourself. God, all of the, the things that we're tempted to lean on for comfort and joy have been, have been taken from us. And so use this as an opportunity, God, to draw our hearts back to you and give us the faith to believe in your goodness, even when we don't see it. Help us to keep going, God, because you're worth it. You're amazing. And thank you, Jesus, for saving us. Thank you for saving us through the worst things about us. Thanks for not turning us away in our weakness, but using our weakness to bring transformation in our lives. God, we, we love you and we trust you. Amen.